0: Let's go live, so I'm not a liar. Well, you are now, we just we just went live. Um, cool, hey everybody, welcome, uh, bonjour and bienvenue, uh, hello everybody. The, my name is John F. McDroppo, it's, uh, I'm here with Sophia X Nilo, group panel discussion. Um, we're continuing our, our panel on the Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, um, by David Hume, uh, a really amazing uh, kind of skeptical work um, Anybody know uh, when, what year that, that came out? And I know Hume died in 1778 I, or I something like that.
1: Believe so I believe it was like a few months before he died or, or maybe just at most a year or two before he died. It was right before his death. Sure, so let's say it's uh, late 18th century. Is that is that
0: um, sort of accurate in, in that area?
1: Right before the American Revolution. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Amazing. For so, us, so, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, he runs through some some pretty amazing arguments in here. Um, it's it's basically a three-way dialogue between uh, Philo, who's a philosophical skeptic, um, Cleanthes, who uh, seems to be more of a evidentialist theist. I might call him. Um, he definitely feels like he needs to have a, a really good reason for believing in theism, um, and that's that's definitely how he comes at. And the other one in it is Demia, um, who seems to. Sort of agree with Philo at the beginning about the incomprehensibility of the deity, um, and uh, but but also very very vehemently believes in in the deity itself, much like much like Cleanthes does.
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, the for the most part the discussion. In the dialogue, or the dialogue is is about the nature of God rather than the existence of God, but it it really is kind of about both to some extent. Um, it's, it that's that's what it said explicitly at the beginning that that no one could deny the existence of God, but we can debate the nature of God. I don't think that that's completely accurate, though. I mean, this is a dialogue that does talk about the existence of God and the nature of God at the same time. I mean, the nature of God, depending on the nature of God, that changes whether or not we consider that being to exist. Um, if by God I simply mean the person that bore me, that, that 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 I came from the womb of, then, well, yes, I do believe that person exists. Uh, so then a discussion on the nature of God is, in some respects, Inevitably, uh, a discussion on the existence of God to some extent, or at least nice. has a huge influence on it.
0: Definitely, I mean, I think I think there's that in there. I mean, there's there's many admissions in here that um, everything that begins to exist has a cause. So they use they use that a priori um, argument to to kind of get to that uh, that position of of a posteriori um, getting to the God, right? I mean, they're sort of defining it. By the maybe I'm using those terms wrong, but they're defining it by the attributes that we are observing around us.
2: Basically. I think I think the uh, notion everything that exists has causes a posteriori or ah uh, yeah I think after the fact well, because you have causation is a principle that you just don't uh, isn't necessarily a principle that you uh, come to by just sitting on your couch. It's something you have to observe, but it's an inference that is made about everything a priori. So, for example, Hume could say, "Well, we only know that because of induction. So, it, just because you've seen it all throughout your life doesn't mean you can't. Inf- you have to infer it um, every time. Doesn't mean you have to infer it about everything." Um,
1: so. I, I, well, I, I think the problem with that is that um, maybe originally it's an inductive observation, but it's a feature of our language. If someone says something began. Then, then it is a perfectly legitimate question, linguistically speaking, to say, well, how did it come to be? What caused it to come to be? I, I, I think that, that in that sense, the a priori truths are determined simply by by linguistic convention, to some extent. Um, but anyway, that, that's... Okay.
0: No, I, I, that, that's, a, that's actually quite clarifying for me. I'm, uh, I was a little confused about the use of it all the time. They, they actually end up using it quite a few times in this dialogue, so it seems like it, seems like it was a pretty important... Uh, Pretty important concept. Um, yes, the definitely. the idea of I mean the, uh, the idea of God being able or, or his nature being able to be ascertained by what we can observe around us. Um, it, I mean, we we definitely got into that in the last discussion. That the idea of analogy being uh, able to dis- describe the deity or not, and and that, it, that it has a lot to do with this dialogue. Um, now, um, I think Cleanthes uh, he in his in his thing he or in his his sort of comparison to the God he. He makes a direct comparison to the uh, building of a house um, in its construction and how we know how houses are built and that they are contrived, right? That they have to be designed and thought of. And that if we have a similar appearance of design or contrivance in nature, that we can um, assume that it has a similar cause, i.e. the uh, organizing thought that brought about the house um, into existence, uh, through through you know, human human endeavor, but but also through um, the idea of an organizing principle or thought, and that's that seems to be where um, Cleanthes sort of makes the analogy. Um, but you know, uh, right away, um, it seems like uh, Philo is kind of right on top of it, and he's he's sort of saying that um, you know it doesn't make much sense to use such a small portion of. Of the world, too, and I think Demia even agrees with them that that it's sort of invalid to use such a small portion of the world to prove what the rule for the rest of the world must be. Um, and he, they compare it to, um, you know, uh, a hair on a, a hair, the development of a hair being used to describe the development of a human, or or you know, um, you know. It, and he said that you know, even if even if you could conclude that you know, stone and brick and all these natural things couldn't come about, you know, they couldn't create. A house any other way than than something similar to a human art then I mean you still can't make that analogy stick to the rest of the universe um, that, it, that there's a difficulty in making that analogy um, applicable uh, in in that sense because it is such a small portion compared to the large the the, the hugeness of what we're trying to describe
1: and uh, one of the points that he makes here is that when we're doing induction um, and we're trying to transfer uh, an inductive uh, conclusion from one situation to another we have to be very wary and test every change that we make if we change the temperature the circumstances uh, that were we're, we're ha- I mean presumably we're trying to determine what cause mm-hmm. has what effect or what effect has what cause uh, and if we we know the cause but we don't necessarily know the effect which is to say if we are if we're behaving in one way in a particular environment, it, and we do not know everything about that environment, we cannot be certain uh, what the effect of that cause will be or, or that action will be. Uh, so what he, he makes the point that any slight variation um, can throw off these sorts of inductive claims significantly. He says in the well, I don't. I don't remember what he particularly says, but he says in the. the I think he says in the temperature, or the weight, or mm-hmm. the. Oh, he says something about the air. The um. Oh, what was it? Here, I can't. I don't. I don't have it right in front of me, but it's something about like the temperament of the air. Uh, and this is a really good point, and it it, it um. It's it, it it makes it hard to to kind of make this inductive analogy because there's this huge gap between a human building a house and. Presumably, God creating the universe—they're just so different uh, that the the leap is not one that he he's he thinks can be made.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely, uh, I, Eddie. There. Uh, I mean, good good to see you today, buddy. Um, what did what did you what did you think about that when you when you read it?
2: Hmm. Uh, I think it's uh, working a little backwards. Uh, for example, um, someone is looking at uh, someone is. Um, Looking at the universe and seeing design, and then deriving a nature of design. Uh, for example, if I was to go and look at a house, I'd say, "Okay, that's a house. What does it mean to be a house? Well, it, well, it means to be well. It means to be designed. But when I look at uh, and I'll infer qualities. It to be a house means to be designed. It means to be structured, organized. It means to uh, house people, so on and so forth. It has all these properties from the fact that it is." it is, a house, but when you look at the universe, the element of design is yet to be inferred. You have to make an, you have to jump to an argument, which I find, uh, which I find correct in this observation, because when you look at the universe, whether or not its design remains to be, fact, effect- to be derived from, you need a certain set of axioms and principles in order to maintain its design. You have to look at the fundamental nature of what it is. So in that respect, it is far different than looking at a construct like a house or William Paley's uh, notion of a watch. You have to look at the nature of reality, the metaphysic, if you will, and then derive its nature from there. You don't just uh, you don't just look at uh, you don't just compare two things and uh, derive similar similarities from properties. It would be like um, it would be like if I uh, if uh, I took a cell phone, and then I also took my guitar tuner. Yeah, there's a bunch of similarities there. They they were both design constructed, plastic shelling, but at the same time they have very different purposes. They have very different modes of of being. that they, they have. There's just a lot of difference you could also focus on. So before you, so you could always look at a, a bit of commonalities. But I don't think it's specific for driving. Well, but I don't think it's as uh, helpful as looking at it and then deriving properties from the nature. I think that's how you should do it as opposed to uh, looking at similarities between two things and then just finding common properties if you will, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, it does, and actually you, you mentioned uh, the, the watch um, and that's a classic example, and if I'm not mistaken, his argument is that anyone looking at a watch, even if they're unfamiliar with the concept of watches or watchmakers, would, upon seeing it, infer that there were, was a designer to it. Am I am I mistaken in that? It, isn't uh, that the argument? Uh, yes, it, it, it would yeah. be. Yeah. That a- and means- I would... And I would actually reject that. I would say, well, no, they wouldn't. They would probably think it's some natural contraption. I mean, imagine imagine a group of people stumbling upon it on a beach who are not familiar with the concept of, of clockwork or watchmaking. I, it, it would never cross their mind that such a thing could be constructed because they could not conceive of that sort of designer. And so one could make the same argument, is that we can conceive of one particular sort of designer that produces one particular sort of design, but maybe if God does exist, God is a completely different sort of designer. Um, and designed it in a very different way. Which is also a way that one might get around a lot of the common objections to the argument from design, uh, because one often people will say, oh but look at these things that are done inefficiently. Mm-hmm. Well, they may appear inefficient, but we have no way of knowing what actual purpose they serve. They so one could argue that as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Also, if you have to also if you're inferring the watch as a pure uh, parallel, then you run into a bit of problems with um, how God is supposed to create um, something. For example, a watch have, a watch presupposes already existing mechanisms and uh, interacting together in in uh, one sure. object or agent, whereas God creates a world uh, without use of anything at all. So the way he, so if that is to be believed, then it's going to be very different in terms of how something's brought up.
1: The only thing he has to pay deference to is the, the laws of logic, essentially. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but not, not even everyone would, would say that. Um, not a, I mean, not I, I'm a actually.
2: If you're a pure, uh, <laughs> theological possibilist.
1: Yeah. Uh, I would actually say personally that I, I think that the argument from design is, especially in the light of evolution, probably one of the weakest arguments on the theistic side, in the same way that it's comparably weak to the evidential argument from evil from the atheistic side I think they're really bad arguments personally um but that is in light of things like evolution one could make an argument from fine-tuning that is a totally different argument I think mm-hmm. though than design
2: fine-tuning cool. yeah exactly uh... the fine uh... Peter Mulliken who is a an atheist uh, and uh, philosopher great uh, uh, university professor of Ox- of uh... uh Cambridge uh, I believe that's correct he actually has a video lecture that I'd suggest to anyone um, actually points to the fine-tuning argument if he had to argue on as a devil's advocate as the the mm-hmm. argument he would actually use. Um, but, yeah, so just to give everyone a hint on how that might be taken a bit more seriously. Uh, but with regards to um, Hume, I think Hume is right. You can't just, in terms of uh, induction, basically you can't have two choices. One is, Paley gives random chance as one of the choices, and he also gives... <laughs> and he also gives uh, intentful design as the other one. Whereas Hume is like, no, no, those are, we only know these because of previous observation. There might be a third thing that we don't know about. So so induction is always a little incomplete in that regard.
1: Yeah, and, and just to, to, to clarify, I do think that the fine-tuning argument is a much, much stronger argument than the argument from design. So I, I actually would, would say it is a significantly more formidable one. Um, so just to be clear, I'm not dismissing that one <laughs> in in me saying that the, the the argument from design is one of the weakest. But anyway, let's let's, let's go on. <laughs> well, I mean it,
0: that's interesting because I mean in in chapter four, um, uh, they kind of Aquinas uh, ends up leaning back onto the argument from design and uh, or from fine tuning almost. Um, it, in a way, I mean he he goes into the idea of um, well here uh, you know one of the one of the things that he really um got into, um, which one of the analogies I really loved was the um, articulate voice heard in the clouds, much louder and more melodious than any any which human art could ever reach. Um, And then, you suppose that this voice, extended in the same instant over all nations, spoke to each nation in its own language and dialect, and suppose that the words delivered not only contain just sense and meaning but convey some instruction altogether worthy of, of a benevolent being superior to mankind. Could you possibly hesitate a moment in concerning the cause of this voice? Must you not instantly ascribe it some design or purpose? Yet I cannot see but all the same objections which lie against the system of theism, which may be produced against this inference. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's very odd that, um, you know, such such a great example of, of something that a deity might be able to affect or, or a, a deity of, of sufficient power might be able to affect. Um, doesn't seem to be enough in this case to to prove the existence of that deity. Um,
1: oh, well, hold on though. The, actually, that's not the point they're making. I mean, I think Hume's, Hume's argument against miracles holds here, but the point that he's making isn't that it's from a deity, because I, I think one could easily say, well, there are there could easily be other explanations than a deity. They, they, they might be complicated explanations, but there could be. What I think he's actually saying, really, is that this must have been Intentionally done. It must have been designed. It could not have been the product of random chance.
0: Ah, uh, yes. I guess I think he kind of goes into that. You know yeah. that it says um, that even if though it bears so little analogy to human voice, um, you can't say that it comes from an accidental whistling of the wind, right? Like, yeah. it would almost be impossible to make that as- in- inference in that case. Uh,
1: yeah, I think that's more the point he's making here. I don't think he's saying that this would be sufficient proof. I mean, it wouldn't. I don't think it would be sufficient proof personally. Um, but <laughs> it would be. It would certainly be something. It would be a. I mean again I think Hume's argument against miracles is actually a really good one and so I would have a hard time being convinced by any miracle of any magnitude but it would certainly get me to consider it seriously uh, but it wouldn't be convincing on its own
0: Yeah I mean um there's I mean there's there's a few different ways he kind of points out the idea that that the system might be fine tuned um he talks about the anatomy of the eye um and I think a little later he gets into the anatomy of muscles and bones um yeah, you know the idea that that because they're so specific and and made to be um, used in such a specific way, that um, that it, that it implies a, a definite purpose to them or, or an intention behind their design. Um, and I mean, he even kind of makes it goes goes even a little further and says that the fact that there's male and female and that there's an interaction between them, you know, that that the species um, that the propagation of the species uh, is seen to seems to be intended. Um, at least by nature, that that's evidence that, that there's possibly a, a, a contriver on the other end of the contrivance.
1: Um, I would like to just to, to sort of maybe clarify something. Um, fine-tuning, at least in the modern form, correct me both of you if I'm wrong, um, but from what I understand it's more about the universal constants being fine-tuned for life. It isn't. It isn't so much individual examples of life. And this is more of an argument from design. It's to, to point to life. Rather, the fine-tuning argument says, if the 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 um if there is not a very particular reason, uh for well if I mean if there's a particular reason for the 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 universal constants like Planck's constant, um the the speed of light, uh the universal gravitational constant, just to name three, um. If there's, not a very, if there's a very particular reason for those to be, be set in such a way for life to exist, there's a good chance that that reason is God, uh, because it's hard to imagine another reason for them to be set like that. Maybe it isn't possible for them to be any other way, but no one has really proposed that in the physics world. No one has really said, well, they couldn't have been any other way. One of the, the counter-arguments is that, well, they could have been another way, but we would never have been able to remark upon that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still is, There's like well, while that is true, evidentially speaking, we never would have been in a situation to observe our universe being uh, not fine-tuned, it is still hard to understand why it would so happen that our universe would be fine-tuned. Anyway, that, I think that's more fine-tuning. I just want to maybe clarify that I, I think this is more right. and i, I
0: mean i i guess i might be extending the the the, the use of the words fine tuning um a little sure. further than they might naturally be used um I, I guess i'm talking more about the idea that um since we're here to observe there there must have been a certain level of uh tuning of uh, forethought anyways there the you know it's the idea that that in order to get to us now there had to have been a forethought to get to this point um you know that the that the variables were um, set up to get us to this point.
1: I, I think you're saying something that's like a, you're kind of making a more general fine-tuning argument um, under the guise of or under the the sort of umbrella which both the f- argument from design and the fine-tuning argument would fall to say. Well, how would we get here? And the fine-tuning argument asks, how would we get here in light of the fact that there doesn't seem to be a particular reason for the universal constants to be as they are? And the argument from design says why would we be here other than for god um because there doesn't seem to be a particular reason for there to be order or or rational or like rational thought in life um so i think you're making a kind of a more broad point and i don't think i think that the that the distinction did not exist in hume's time
0: well so. i think you know i think the point is is that um because nature is so orderly um it 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 mm-hmm. must have been uh fine tuned to be that way um
1: Yes, it's, just, it's harder. It's harder. It's harder. I mean, yeah. I mean, both orderly and conducive to life.
0: Yeah, I mean, see, there's there's a few different a few different factors that kind of yeah. go into this idea of orderliness um, in nature, and and I think that's where it is, right? I mean, in order for there to be uh, a motivation uh, implied in in the in the way nature is now, um, we would have to kind of. It, there would almost have to be a certain level of variables that would have to have been fine-tuned in order to make that happen. And I think that's what I'm sort of getting at, and I don't, I don't know if that's, it's, no, it's sort uh,
2: of uh, just to rush to your defense. Yeah, I, please I get it. I actually, I do kind of get it. That this notion of fine-tuning in the universe isn't necessarily in terms of the uh, physical constants. Uh, you know, uh, gravitational, uh, like the notion of. Gravity always being constant, not to mention a lot of other factors. Like I said, it's not in that sense, but more as the things that are in nature uh, seem to be designed for one another. There's kind of a conduciveness where everything seems to be formed around uh, one another. For example, just to use the uh, gender analogy, we have uh, two genders who are more or less form for each other mm-hmm. we have the proper parts connecting in the proper places to use a, a, a much a less vulgar uh, <laughs> way, of, way of discuss it in the birds of bees but uh, we have that going on we have uh, base everything is just formed for, for each other and uh, considering that this would be uh, before Darwinian evolution as a concept where things just where uh, processes emerge where to survive they uh organisms uh, have a certain tension between one another where they uh, where they influence their own being as well as their environment in order to make something that seems that seems to be already relational to begin with before that it would the the notion of uh, fine-tuning would just be that the the way that everything in nature is formed is can do uh, seems to be uh, proper and orderly therefore we could Uh, come up with the notion of something that orders as opposed to uh, a naturalistic process that does the ordering for you for example uh, uh, for example as opposed some uh, there would be some species of animal that would reproduce asexually there would be other species that would have better survival rates and uh, have a better conducive uh, environment if they uh, had some kind of dynamic element like uh, the female male gender so uh, with regards to that, it, it's it's not fine tuning in the physical sense, uh, the the constants there, but rather it's uh, fine It would be uh, rather fine tuning in the biological sense, where uh, the where rather uh, everything seems more or less formed for one another. Humans are formed for their environment. Their environment is formed for them. The genders are formed for one another. Uh, it's it's an amazing outcome that could be explained now through evolution, through uh, a look at. Uh, at the process of evolution but at that time would have been something kind of similar to a, a physical look at fine-tuning
1: uh, Epicurus i think you're absolutely right um, this is it's it's merely uh, 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 a that, that that kind of fine-tuning is no longer something that's remarkable to us mm-hmm. but the physical kind is still quite remarkable in some respects oh. um, and so uh, there are i mean there's some suggested ways of explaining it but i, I haven't Personally, found any of them particularly satisfying uh, from a naturalistic point of view, um, but but no, I, I I think you're absolutely right, and that, that it is a sort of antiquated fine tuning argument. Um, this isn't the kind of argument that would now be made as a fine tuning argument. But yeah, no, you're right. Yeah,
2: yeah no, and I, mean- I, I think John get John. I think you. Uh, make a
1: very astute point there. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, as long as I'm not too
0: far off the uh, <laughs> the intended path of, of David Hume here, I'd feel terrible if I was getting his, his book wrong. Um,
1: I think you're closer to it than I was. I was just <laughs> injecting a bit of more modernity in here. <laughs> ah, no
0: problem, no problem. Yeah. You know, I, uh, it it's, uh, Clientes sort of uses, uh, the idea of a book, right? And I think he even goes as far as to say, you know, what if books, um, were, could be read by anybody and propagated themselves, um, then, if you found if you found a library full of books, um, and you started reading them, it, the the intention would be obvious um, because they um, are there to you know they're there to propagate themselves. And I, I I thought that analogy was really weird. Did you guys pick up on that one? Um, it doesn't it doesn't really entirely make sense that uh, books could propagate themselves, that you could get a new book out of. Two other books or something along those lines. Back, um, in the,
2: back in this time, uh, just and uh, just to point out that observation, there was uh, people tend to look at uh, at uh, natural theology as what's known as the second book, the first book of God being the Bible, whereas you have one book which is God delivers through 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 revelation, uh, su- such as uh, scriptures and the church and the church uh, declaring uh, uh, certain doctrines and then on the other hand you would have uh, then you would have a natural theology, whereas the, obs- whereas uh, looking at nature and pontificating upon it and, see- and seeing it as it is, uh, you would get uh, certain facts about God uh, through that, uh, so nature was called the second book, so essentially whenever uh, and at this time if you were a scientist, you weren't just uh, off in your own little section like uh, we are now, where uh, if you're uh, a scientist now, you just specialize in one area. You specialize in physics, or another scientist will specialize in biology, and they also and also today uh, there would be philosophers who would specialize in uh, philosophy and some even in certain segments of philosophy, and you'd also get theologians who just do their thing. But then, if you were in academia, you were a scientist, you were a theologian, you were a philosopher. at all at the exact same time. That's why Newton would uh, develop his calculus while at the same time making these weird kind of prophecies through the book of Revelations. Uh, So so, uh, because of that, uh, people who were in academia, they didn't just look at uh, scripture uh, as it was the uh, book of Revelation. They'd also look at uh, nature as being a book where we can decode and gather information about it, especially in terms of its specific nature, who designed it, uh, what it's like, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so that's where this notion. So I think that's where this notion of reading of the library comes from. We have this huge thing called nature, and we could decode so much from it. We could get uh, medicines. We could get. Uh, uh, we could get. Uh, Taxonomies of organisms and species, and we could derive so much from it. It becomes such a library, and hmm. when you see it as a library, you kind of make. It's uh, very natural to make that kind of parallel. I'm using the word natural yeah. way too much. Yeah, thanks, uh, I,
0: I think that I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, that that is sort of a <clears throat> an interesting analogy. Then in that case. Um, there's sort of there is sort of there are sort of parallels that could be kind of taken from that as if we were reading nature or reading the exterior, uh, you know, observable world.
1: Um, Eddie, I think that's a that's a very interesting historical point. Um, I I didn't take that interpretation from it because I don't know the history as well as you did. Uh, so I, I will share my interpretation briefly, um, which I'm not confident. I think yours is probably more accurate than mine. But the but I love the I love
0: new interpretations. So please yeah. please do do everything's cool. That's
1: alright. The sense that I got from it, not knowing what Eddie just said, um, is that uh, it, the books are 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 here to represent people. He says that the books expound their ideas, and they they. Uh, they they can explain things to one another and argue about them and consider them and so I think the books here are meant to be rational entities um, in a more abstract sense they're they're meant to represent people to some extent and so what he's saying is oh look at all of these these rational minds um, whose contents whose the, the contents of these minds are as as carefully crafted as that of a book um, now. There's another way to look at it, mm-hmm. through a more modern lens, uh, and this is what I got from it immediately, is, is I thought about DNA, um, and so in a sense... Uh, that's, one from the,
2: c- that's from the stupid ID movement.
1: Well, I, I, I sure. I don't
2: know, I'm, I'm just, this is just my own personal frustration, but go on. Uh,
1: but but I think it's it's interesting to consider that, that in a sense we we are these sorts of walking libraries, <laughs> but, but the expounding our ideas to one another part is not... The sensible bit of it, but but it, it I f- found that interesting um, anachronism to some extent. I, I found it interesting, but no, I think your your interpretation is probably closer to the the fact.
2: I think you, I think your interpretation does help a bit. Uh, uh, I think it either way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but also, it's just very uh, on the general note. I find it just very incredible that us being humans, uh, who uh, who are uh, basically animals who learn to make houses and wear, aw- and wear clothing, which is uh, just awesome in itself. Uh, I find it very amazing that we're actually able to look at something and get so much information out of it as well. The interesting thing about the universe is we can make sense of the universe. Um, I think uh, <laughs> no, I think Pas- uh, Blaise Pascal actually said something that was really amazing. He said, if all of humanity was killed by uh, nature or by the universe humans would still be more noble because they would know of what killed them whereas what killed them goes <laughs> not of itself
1: hmm. yeah I mean that's interesting I have some disagreements but they're kind of more subtle I, I I'm not convinced that that reality is necessarily intelligible in some respects but okay. but anyway that's a much broader argument to that's, be had yeah, well, I, think, yeah
0: I think <laughs> uh, I think but I but I like the um the I, like, I think I like your interpretation a little better, Ep- Epicurus. there. I think because, I mean, a little later he says, um, Philo kind of against Cleanthes, uh, and he actually looks a little embarrassed uh, when he says this. He says, your instance, Cleanthes, drawn from books and language being familiar, has, I confess, so much more force on that account. But is there not some danger, too, in this very circumstance, that it may render us presumptuous by making us imagine we comprehend the deity and have some adequate idea of his nature and attributes? When I read a volume, I enter into the mind and intention of the author. I become him, and in a manner, for the instance, I have an immediate feeling and conception of those ideas which revolved in his imagination while employed in that composition. But so near an approach, we surely can never make of the, to the deity. His ways are not our ways. His attributes are perfect but incomprehensible, and this volume of nature contains a great and inexplicable riddle, more than any intelligible discourse or reasoning. Um, so I think I think both of your interpretations sort of work in that in that sense as as the book being um, inadequate and but but that we you know when we read it um, we're supposed to get if if there was an author we should get a sense of his intention um, when we read it. And I think that's, that's the distinction File is trying to make. Um, that, that in all of his experience with books, there's always, there's always um, a way for him to, to kind of uh, infer the intention of, of the author itself.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, yeah, again, I, I think that Eddie's interpretation is far more historically informed than mine, <laughs> but um, uh, I think it it just represents that there are multiple ways that it can make sense, but one is probably much closer to what Hume actually meant, which definitely is to say I think maybe into his mind. I think
0: maybe your yeah, I think maybe I, your interpretation was it's a little more of a stretch, but you could make it work, um, as in as in the idea that I mean people are sort of inexplicable and hard to read, right? Um, and that that even their intentions can be um. Uh, hard to gauge or discern.
2: It's even hard, uh, just about the nature of looking into a book and gazing at the mind of the author. It's really hard to. I, I find that to be uh, a a bad argument in so far as how I understand how people read literature. Whenever I tend to read an author, uh, I it, mostly in fiction as opposed to nonfiction, because with nonfiction you could you could hope for a little uh, less. Uh, subjectivity i tend to find that you could infer anything f- about what someone says uh, from a fiction for example you could have somebody read deeply into the symbols of something like the cur- the blue curtains represent the depression the depressing state of one of the characters where someone could read it and say oh the curtains are just blue you basi- basically whenever you read human authors we tend to put we tend to have a hard time placing our emphasis uh, and even when looking at history, there's a there are different traditions in which you can look at an author. You could look at the author from the tradition they preceded, like looking at Descartes from his more Aristotelian kind of background. And there's also Descartes, the person we look at, the philosophical modern who changed the nature of how we pontificate. There's there's so reading an author is very difficult and when you say well how am I supposed to gaze into the mind of God well you're not you have to take care of your you have to look at your own uh, you have to look at the way uh, you think for yourself you're not the problem isn't that uh, you can deduce from God by looking into nature but the problem for me would be by looking into nature or any book too much, you might be reading a bit too much of yourself. So there's yeah. o- there always has to be kind of nuance.
0: I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if Hume is undercutting Philo's point here in a little in a way by making well, because because I had to read it so many t- this I had to read his writing so many times to understand what he was trying to mean. Um, and so in that way, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't in the mind of the author clearly when I'm reading this, and and you know, and still I'm still not 100% certain where Hume comes down on this whole argument, right? I mean, there doesn't actually seem to be um, a resolution per se. Um, there are several of the points are rebutted, but I don't I don't think that um, any resolutions come to. So I I mean I mean maybe that is his position, but it, it's hard to say. I'd say.
1: Okay, well, well, I mean, I, I'd like to maybe uh, I I think um, uh, Edward, your your point about reading too much into it and kind of uh, transposing our own view on it is wouldn't undercut his point at all because I think that's kind of what he's accusing people of doing. Is they're they're looking at this great mystery and they're they're uh, affixing their own mind to it. They're saying, well, a mind like my own must have created this. Uh, for I can conceive of no other. So I'm not sure that undercuts his point, but it's an interesting point by you as well. Um,
2: the point I was trying to... Uh, yeah, but uh, what I was doing was pointing out that... Um,
1: yeah, well, that, hold on, hold on. That even
2: reading from a human perspective is difficult, not let not uh, let alone that of the absolute deity, just reading from a human work, because he says, oh, I could easily just go and become... enter in the mind of the author. I think even that's stretching it too much. I think I'm essentially trying to extend... A, the point being brought up here, not necessarily under uh, uh, extend the point uh, that's being brought up against Clanthes, uh, uh here. Okay. By, uh, I not know it's not Philo. Philo, it's uh, De- Demia. I I forget how the pronunciation is. Uh...
1: Um, I think the point's being brought up against these because Clanthes is the one that oh, didn't uh, uh, yeah, yeah, but the, it's brought up by oh, Demia. Oh. Oh, yeah. I think so. Uh, well, hold on though. I also wanted to to, to go on a little bit more. Um. Yeah. When he says reading allows us to look into the mind of the author, I don't think he's referring to fiction. I I, I don't. I, I think when I read um, a bit of Plato, I can't I can't get into his mind. But when I read a bit of expository work, then, and if the writer is sufficiently articulate, then to some extent I can see into their mind, even if only for a brief instant. And presumably God is perfectly articulate, and is and 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 therefore, by looking at his creation, one could be able to 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 step into God's mind quite effectively. Would you not think that god of if if anyone can can articulate their thoughts in such a manner as they could be understood by another mind? Wouldn't God be the one to do that?
2: Well, not necessarily one mind, but uh, let's see, billions of minds spanning lifetimes with various different cultural contexts and ling and linguistic uh, barriers. That is um, that's a much, uh, Different argument where uh, to be had, and for and for God just to uh, ha- to necessitate a creation where His mind could uh, be extrapolated from is far different. Because again, you have various different people who impose various different interpretations based on uh, not necessarily their culture, but even their environment uh, and how that might shape you. Uh, um, so I, wasn't, so I'm sorry, I, I
1: wasn't referring to the Bible at all, actually. I was talking about creation.
2: Nature. Creation, yes. People understand creation in various different ways, as as many different cultures. They get different interpretations, and they also get interpretations that might be more helpful for their context. So, uh, for example, you might get certain uh, tribes who might have a oneness with nature. Maybe uh, some, maybe a group like the native, like uh, the Native Americans, who uh, mm-hmm. have two base who have that kind of unity. Whereas you might get other groups who. Uh, who might uh, endorse notions of nature where it's more agricultural where for example, where yeah. you're encouraged just to uh, seal yourself off from nature and find uh, communities build uh, small towns and that might lead into cities so again you have different ways of so you have different ways of relating to nature that have not only uh, purposes of truth but also pragmatic purposes so. Okay. If, so okay. there are very, so there's very, even within uh, understanding creation, there are various different ways that uh, people could uh, in, interpret it. Uh, I would say. Uh, that's where the
1: difficulty might lie. Oh, okay, but but that actually kind of supports my point, though. I'm saying that if God is perfect, and, and, and in the sense of being perfect at communicating, it means being perfect at imposing one's will upon the world, uh, either their will into the mind of another, or into the mind of a computer, uh, or into the mind of another to ultimately be Uh, turned into some other things. So, for example, if I say, go over there, then my communication is successful if the person I intended to speak to does what I intended them to do. Um, so, So, presumably, God's intention can be communicated perfectly through His creation. Because oh, well. God is per- uh, oh, God is perfectly articulate, and so we couldn't we couldn't misunderstand. I mean, presumably, if we're being if I mean, communication is a two way street, though, to some extent. One one oh. one has to one has to be uh, interpreting it properly. But the more articulate one is, the less effort the other has to put into it. And so, I something see. that is perfectly articulate would need pr- presumably either no interpretation whatsoever or hardly any. That's uh, kind of the argument I'm putting forth.
2: I see. Well, in that case, okay, in that case, I would just point to uh, the two different forms of revelation that the church fathers might have uh, interpreted. Uh, for example, uh, when looking at uh, the, the, the different groups, uh, the church would uh, draw two uh, lines, one between the Hebrews and one between uh, the Gentiles, who they would call the nations. What God gave to the uh, he- what they would assume uh, God gave to the Hebrews was a revelation in the code, or what's known as the law. The law would uh, would shape certain would uh, shape uh, three kind of criterions. There'd be the civic, there'd be the ceremonial, and there'd also be the moral. So these three different aspects help shape and raise the tribe in which they could receive and uh, garner the oncoming science, and that's what God revealed to them. Whereas to the nations, God revealed what's known as the natural law, and natural law uh, goes back to uh, Plato and Aristotle. It's this notion that. Within the fundamental nature of reality, you could derive certain you could derive certain codes and odds of behaviors that shaped society. And to that extent, I think uh, I think uh, we have every society has been along some kind of foundation that uh, we could see. Uh, for example, most societies have notions of marriages, even though they're not perfectly synonymous. For example, there are some that are polygamous, monogamous, mm-hmm. uh, various. There's still an un, there is still an underlying bring together of uh, two gen of uh, two genders. Even when you look at Native American groups, who had homo- who had uh, homosexuality as the kind of I think the term was third spirit or dual spirit. Uh, basically, they actually had homosexual couples. Even that was presented underneath the auspices of the male female dynamic. Hmm. So and and not only that, but you'd also have a ceremonial burying of the dead in some way. You you'd have the these very you'd have these very sustaining elements that would keep these societies afloat. And essentially, both these would sustain until the oncoming Messiah, and then you'd have the and then you'd have the, uh, the church. So God prepare so God prepares a message uh, in the natu- in the uh, natural law and. Also in the revealed law, and then then all that is brought together in the right. of the church. So that's oh, okay. how I would describe the. That's how I describe the two, where you don't necessarily get the full truth through just a understanding of one, but through the understanding of both in yeah. kind of in that kind of tandem.
1: I, I actually don't think I can accept that though. I mean, uh, if 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 I were a theist, and here's why. I mean, I think you're you're, you're much closer to my point now, but I think you're still slightly missing it. Oh. Uh, let us imagine the perfect God, this being is in every way utterly perfect. Let's, let's just uh, take the, ont- the God of the ontological argument. Cool. This being can exert its will perfectly. And, and in exerting its will perfectly, in the same way that a human does, by writing down things, uh, one viewing that thing can understand what that person's will is, if that was their will to have it be understood. So presumably, if God wanted wants to be understood merely by by doing anything, merely by creating things, uh, one can see directly into the will of God simply by by looking at nature hmm. um, because because in in God's perfect articulateness and their ability to to express their will perfectly and in God's ability to express its will perfectly um, it, it God couldn't be misunderstood unless God wanted to be misunderstood for some reason um, and because I don't believe in free will, then the whole thing about... Well, people have to choose freely to go to God. It doesn't really hold any water with me. Um,
2: I just but, I, I want to underscore this point of how hard it is for humans to understand people by missing your point and just ignoring it. Maybe that will <laughs> maybe that will serve sort of <laughs> as, as an argument from example. <laughs> but but <laughs> but, but I, I mean, I that
1: demonstrates it. a failure in my articulateness. <laughs> or
2: my understanding is cool as the joke would as the joke would entail, but.
0: Um, I, yeah, I mean the, the idea of perfection sort of does get covered in this a little bit. Um, I think uh, Philo when he's talking to Cleanthes, um, I think Cleanthes makes a statement about um, the the analogy being liker the better, right? That the more like the analogy is, the better it could serve us as as an example of the of the deity's nature. Um, and Philo first says like you know. I, I, if if that's the case, then the analogy doesn't provide us with any reason to think that the deity has in an, any infinite. Uh, qualities, right? Um, but also, um, he says, uh, secondly, you have no reason on your theory for ascribing perfection to the deity, even in his finite capacity, for suppo- or for supposing him free from every error, mistake, or incoherence in his undertakings. Uh, there are many inexplicable dic- difficulties in the works of nature, which, if we allow a perfect author to be proved a priori, are easily solved, and only and become only seeming difficulties from the narrow capacity of man who cannot cannot trace infinite relations um so there's there there's the idea that um because the um our our ability to observe it is imperfect that that would suggest that the author might be imperfect um what what do, what do you think about that uh, uh i think that well, i
2: think that actually helps uh, underscore uh, uh gibran's main point here and to a certain extent that it, and to a certain extent that is pretty interesting but one would also have to uh, maintain what the author is it when looking at an author's uh, failure, one has to think of the author's original intent. Uh, for example, uh, let's for example uh, let's say uh, there's an author who writes fiction and in this fiction there is a, there's an entendre of sorts whereas, Whereas uh, someone is seen to make to say something uh, obscene when in fact uh, this entendre is actually pretty clean when properly read over again. Now the uh, now why would the author might uh, why would the author put something as a failure to understand uh, something to trip somebody up? Well, uh, attention. There's a there's kind of a final consequent outcome and uh, do. In doing such a thing, so even uh, so, when uh, looking at so when looking at that, uh, the author looks at a human failure or shortcoming and uses it for their advantage. Now, in terms of now uh, the scenario I described is pretty deceptive. Uh, some uh, someone extrapolating a weakness from somebody to get their own gain, but uh, but let's but uh, if we imagine something that would be uh, a lot a ni- lot nicer, somebody. Uh, get somebody bring a point of misunderstanding to uh, in such a work to get uh, the public focused on uh, let's say a horrible event like a genocide in Ru- like the genocide in Rwanda. Well one would think that uh, okay the author just used uh, our the author used our shortcomings in order to draw us to a much huger point. So for this example uh, knowing that uh, humans are fallible open to misinterpretation God, it it's uh, completely possible that instead of trying to push for perfect uh, uh, objective understanding among people, that God uses such a weakness as a way to uh, to progress an even greater message.
1: So, I mean, I, fair enough. I, that may be the case, but but part of this is undercut by the fact that we are part of God's creation. We're part of God's authorship. We're, we're something that. We're saying that God created, and so our imperfections are an example, our imperfections are an example of the failings of, of God to be properly articulate, or they're an example of His message being different. Now, I we're going into argument from evil ground, or argument from evil sort of grounds here. Like yeah, which is, which is sort
0: of yeah. into uh, chapter 10, so I kind of wanted to hold off on that yes, if we can. Um.
1: Uh, and I'm not actually trying to make that argument here. I'm actually. I'm coming at this from the point of view of someone whose whose theology, given that I'm an atheist, would be that of a a Leibnizian god, a a perfect deity. Um, uh, I th- I think hmm.
2: the word you're looking at just I know this might this might be a uh, this uh, might be a little nitpicky, but uh, the the term is Anselmian, a, a perfect god theology, whereas a being greater so great that none greater can be conceived. Where well, oh, there's a being who none greater can be conceived. I would think that. A greater being is someone who could make a creation that could perfectly understand what he would want is, is yeah. the point you're saying.
1: Well, I, I, I say Leibnizian because um, I, I, I really uh, I like his, his solution to the problem of evil, which is that actually we live in the most perfect possible world. And so there is there is no contradiction there, and I actually like that. I think that's an interesting solution. I don't necessarily agree with it, but but it's an interesting s- possible solution, and that's why I would I would describe myself more in terms of, of Leibniz than Anselm. But no, I agree. Anselm was a little bit of a way as well. I just just Leibniz's uh, a, a subtle addition to that is something I appreciate. I see. I see. Uh, <coughs> uh, not to
2: excuse me on that one. So, but uh, if one looks at Christian theology one can see uh, a one could actually see creatures that are perfectly capable of understanding what God wants to a much greater extent uh, who uh, who are uh, essentially allowed to have so much power and still exist uh, despite the fact that they are even able to rebel uh, uh, Lucifer is who uh, In the Christian conception, is uh, Satan or the the deceiver, the greatest enemy, uh, so on and so forth. Actually, is considered this uh, the smartest, uh, one of the the smartest, if not one of the smartest creatures in God's creation, who could actually uh, hypothetically look at all this stuff and be like, ah, that's exactly what God wants, but going to reject it. Uh, So in order, so one could actually it's one could actually see that in by creating creatures who are more fallible in error. Come to a gradual, progressive change, as opposed to having a, a perfect understanding that is susceptible to uh, to their own evils. Or, hmm.
0: yeah, I mean, uh, I, to a, to an extent, I agree with that. Um, I mean, there's there's definitely something to that. Um, but I but I wonder. I mean, it isn't isn't that a reflection on on the the creator itself? If uh, if we are in fact his his creations, right? I mean. Um, hmm. It, it, it's sort of it's sort of uh, odd you know um I think I think Philo points out that I mean it, it's hard for us to, with limited view um, it's hard for us to know mm-hmm. if the entirety of the system would contain any major faults or or if we if we could accurately describe if the if the system is good or bad right um, I think he he, uh, he says it's something about like up um, could a peasant who hasn't read anything else um. Give you? Could he rank a poem that he read? Right, like even if it was the best poem in the world, would he know that it was the best poem? Like, would he be able to ascribe any perfection to it at all? Um, even if it was perfect, and I think that's a really that's a really interesting point that maybe the world, I you know, I I don't know, I don't think that was the point file was making, but I, but when I kind of read that, I thought you know that's that's interesting. Like maybe maybe the world is perfect, and just our observations of it are are limited and imperfect. Um. That's that's it's it's somewhat of a of an of an option, anyways.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, just to briefly go back yeah. a little bit, uh, Epic, Eddie. Uh, the reason that I would reject that is that that, that most of that 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 doctrine. Uh, correct me if I'm incorrect here, but most of it is based off of the idea that uh, to come to salvation, um, people have to do so of their own volition, of their own free will. But because I don't believe in free will, um, there is no. Okay.
2: That's okay. Leibniz didn't either.
1: Yeah, but I guess the the thing there is that there's no reason for me to accept that. There's no reason for me to to accept then the whole doctrine if I reject the premise of free will entirely. Um,
2: well, then, well, if you reject the doctrine of no free will, then one could uh, one on a more Calvinistic side could always argue that there's only a certain group of the elect who are ever meant to grasp this, and this is done through God's arbitration.
1: Sure, and, and I mean, I I guess the problem is is that that seems now, again, this is this is why I think that all, all of the arguments from evil are fundamentally flawed. Um, and it's it's going to be rooted in precisely what I'm going to say next. And this, this what I'm about to say right now, is exactly why all these arguments fail. I cannot understand why any perfect being would want that. That's it right there. All arguments from evil are arguments from ignorance. There may very well be a good reason that I'm completely unaware of. It just is utterly incomprehensible. But... I cannot imagine any reason why a perfect being would have an imperfect uh, will. and and I think that an imperfection in one's articulateness in one's ability to express oneself is a failure in one's will, because I think of communication merely in terms, of, of, of expressing one's will. It's a way of expressing one's will. It's, it's, it's uh, changing how one it's, it's changing either mental objects in someone else, it's exerting one's will on another person's mental objects, or exerting one's will on someone so that they exert their will on objects outside of their body. In the same way that I'm exerting my will when I pick up my, my um, uh, hoodie here. Uh, I'm exerting my will on the world, and when I communicate to you, when I say, hey, uh, make me some food, uh, and you do it, then I'm exerting my will on you successfully. And I don't, I cannot, I think that it would be, if if I were religious, I would find it insulting to God to say that God would ever fail to exert God's will. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: it's well, it especially comes to, well, if we're going to uh, look at a notion of, for example, who is it that is supposed to receive, uh, who is God supposed to, Receive into his fold, or who is exactly of the elect. just to use a more Calvinistic uh, deterministic uh, uh, kind of situation, which I think you'd be more comfortable with, uh, coming from your position as more of a determinist. Probably. Uh, in in such a circumstance, one could also argue God as being such as being like uh, a military encoder, one who writes down messages that only his uh, troops could that only his side uh, could understand. Uh, Using secret messages that might seem like everyday conversation that only a certain uh, per, that only a certain group of people would understand. So in that way, if God has a certain elect group that He's trying to uh, communicate to to that group, He's speaking perfectly fine. But to everyone else, uh, it's going to come across as gibberish because that's the specific group He wants. Yeah,
1: so, fair so enough. Then, fair enough, but. I that, that 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 leaves the question of why would God, but but the problem is is that 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 kind of that that misses sort of part of the point I'm making. I mean, part of the point I'm making is that God is failing to communicate to us. The fact that I don't believe in God simply by looking at anything in nature, in my mind, demonstrates that God is not perfectly articulate.
2: Well, f- failing well, to communicate. Oh, well,
1: sorry. here's the other side of this. Here's the other point that that and, and and this is why why I'm not I'm not totally buying this. Well, he he's. He's failing to communicate something. I mean, here I, the other part is that that I myself am part of that message. I shouldn't even have to look at things. I, I should merely look at myself and consider myself, and very immediately come to the realization uh, that 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 I am doing something that is in God's will. Otherwise, I think it would be an insult to to God's will. But but but, I I I understand the point about maybe he has these reasons to do things in this sort of. Um, a somewhat seemingly arbitrary way, and, and I agree that that that, 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 no, like, that saying, well, that's arbitrary, is no response to that. I totally agree. I think that, again, I think that arguments from evil are really terrible arguments for the most part. But the, the point I'm making here is more that it's not actually an argument from evil, it's an argument from impotence. It's saying that by not being able to, not, it's not just not being able to, but, but at any point failing to express one's will perfectly, is a is a failure of God's omnipotence that that any time one fails to express their will perfectly, they're not being perfectly articulate, uh, or or the other way around as well. They're not being perfectly articulate. They're not being their their will is not being expressed perfectly. Um, that's that's sort of the problem I'm I'm getting at. But anyway, it's it's maybe a subtle one, and it's definitely not related to the text very much. So we might want to move on. <laughs> no,
2: no worries. I I'm not gonna uh, just. Uh, to say I understand the subtlety where you're coming from. At least I'm trying to do my uh, best with that, and as long as that's being understood, um, I think we're both on the same page. I hope at least what I'm saying isn't uh, completely missing the mic. I hope I, I'm addressing no, I at, it... at least a few of your concerns.
1: No, no, I think you're addressing most of it. There's there's a, a subtler point here that I'm feeling for that there, there's a point here I'm failing to articulate and if I can't articulate it then I can't expect you to respond to it uh, but I think you're mostly addressing it and I, I agree with your solution for the most part I, I I think that the argument from evil is a terrible argument because there there may very well be simply things we cannot comprehend um, about about what is ultimately good so I actually agree with you there again I I think it, I, I discourage my my atheist friends from using that argument because it's a really poor one but um, but yes, so I, there, I'm trying to make a point that I, I'm not articulate enough to make. So I think we should move on.
2: <laughs> uh, just to say to my atheist friends, if you want a good argument against God, the best I've ever heard, or the at least the best one I've actually come across is uh, divine hiddenness. But I think the argument from divine hiddenness is perhaps the best argument against God's existence, at least for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think basically, I mean, Philo really argues hard against the idea of. Anthropomorphism, right? Um, He's—I think what he's really arguing against here is, you know, uh, he thinks, you know, what does he say here? Um. Uh. Uh. And why not become a perfect anthropomorphite? Why not assert that deity or deities to be corporeal and have eyes, nose, mouth, and ears? Epicurus maintained that no man had ever seen reason but in a human fig- figure, and therefore gods must have a human figure. And this argument, which is so desert, which. Is deservedly so much ridiculed by Cicero becomes solid accord or according to you becomes solid and philosophical. Um, so it, it, well, he's he's talking to Cleanthes there and explaining that you know you can't you can't say that um, God is, is like humans in this way that that his mind will in any way um, be able will be able to understand. It unless you want to go the full way and say that God is is mostly like humans, right? Um, it doesn't doesn't the analogy have to be really close in order for us to have any experience of it?
1: Uh, Epicurus, how did he how did he anticipate and criticize your arguments yeah. uh, 200 years earlier, <laughs> 250 years earlier? Yeah, actually,
0: uh, your name gets dropped a couple times in this document, Epicurus. So, for my namesake, at least. Yeah. Oh right, right.
2: <laughs> the Re- keep, remember there's, there, there's that little underlining.
0: Uh, yeah, you got your tagline should, should yeah. let people know that. This Sorry, thing. I keep forgetting. Uh, cool. So, um, you know, as we kind of move on from chapter five, there we go into um, it's it's not anthropomorphism anymore. I mean, he doesn't doesn't go as far as to say that there's human intention behind the design. Um, he's now starting to talk into um the idea of the analogy of an animal where. You just you're looking at the so I think it would probably be um, almost more of a deistic kind of god, right? Um, where he stepped back from intention and he's now just more allowing um, uh, the system to operate.
1: Well, that's actually Philo making that argument. He's he's arguing that if if we follow Cleanthes reasoning, we get to a god which is, is as much animal as human or vegetable as animal.
0: Right, um, I mean, uh, yeah, he actually, actually does end up getting to that point where I mean, <laughs> even after Cleanthes uh, uh, you know, ascends to the animal analogy, he says, well, wait a second, it's even closer to a vegetable which doesn't need any thinking or, or organs or anything to kind of make it happen, right? It just propagates itself in, in, a, in a very systematic way. So Eddie, what, do you, what would you like to say about that?
2: The deistic actually does pertain to a criticism that is valid among deists uh, at that time, uh, just to throw in a bit of the history in there. Um, t- pair, even though we might think of Descartes as being a very theistic person in a, in his own right, uh, when uh, na- when people started looking at God purely through naturalistic terms, uh, such as Cleanthes, was, uh, there was uh, a term for it, it uh, for these people in a very derogatory fashion. They were called mechanistic atheists. Not making that up. Mechanistic atheists. That's because they imagined a God who would be like, okay, I'm going to turn this pendle, or whatever, right now, and I'm just going to see how the universe unfolds uh, in perpetual motion. And uh, then God would just idly sit by and watch it uh, as it proceeded as being a God who was uh, directly involved in the world, which uh, which, uh, I find... To be a, a very astute criticism uh, yeah. of where Cleanthes is coming from, uh, and that, and I think that is the sh- that is the shortcoming of looking at it as purely naturalistic, because uh, we get some, you get less of a, a you get less of a Christian, uh, someone thinking in terms of a revealed theology of uh, someone like the God of the Bible. You get a God of Aristotle. Aristotle thought of a God who was. Who was fully actual? There was no potential within him. A God who just uh, is, and he has no shortcomings. For example, this God would have to be a self, because if God was not a self, if he was just a thing like a vegetable, one could infer another quality in which he does not have. So there, are elements, and this God was, and such a God was an intellect, but it was an intellect of its own right. It would just. Uh, It would just uh, be as is while everything around the world turned while everything in the universe turned around it. uh, You could think of you could think of it as like the solar system where you have the sun right in the middle and the sun's not doing anything. The sun's just being the sun where everything else is just moving around it uh, through certain elements. So in that regard, God is akin to to more of an Aristotelian notion where God just uh, is. He just he just sits there, and everything uh, runs around him. Hmm. And I think that's essentially where the criticism is to look at it in a historical frame. Or would you like to, me to address it in a more philosophical context? Well,
0: here, I mean, um, I think I think about it's about half. Uh, no, it's only a couple paragraphs here. Uh, let's see here. Um, in, in paragraph ninety-eight, I got it uh, highlighted. Um, he says, you know, um, that the world is. You know, he's inferring that the world is is closer to an animal. Um, you know, he says it's uh, the circula- It's got a continual circulation of mat of matter. It produces no disorder. Um, it has uh, waste is uh, incessantly repaired, um, and so the the closest thing that it sort of seems to operate as is is an animal. And then he says, um, you know, I infer that it is an animal, and that the deity is the soul of the world, actuating it and being a- and actuated by it. Um, now, that seems a little, almost a little different than uh, just a completely um, mechanistic uh, uh, sort of claim, like or sort of description, like you might, like you just described mm-hmm. there. Um, that almost seems like um, God is uh, responsive to the world. You know, he's he's almost uh, an inherent part of anything that could be considered maybe alive or
1: the vital or, spirit of the world is mm-hmm. the thing that makes it go around. It's continuous intervention. That's that, well, that kind that's, of,
2: very, that's an interesting parallel. It actually reminds me more of Spinoza's god, you know, the one who is just one with the world. and mm. uh, Yeah, I and mean,
0: almost experiencing it with us now, right? Um, it, it, it sort of removes a little bit of the control of the idea of from the god, right? Um, although, although I guess, in a way, in that sort of thinking, the, the soul definitely was sort of the controlling uh, feature, but it was it was actually affected by the outside world also, right? So I mean yeah, they, like, they they acknowledge that. So
2: yeah, it was. Uh, I think the notion of soul in this situation would be uh, uh, more l- would be less of a uh, an Aristotelian notion where the or the Aristotelian to- uh, Thomas notion where the human soul was actually part of uh, was a uh, part of the body. It was just it was if you look at a human, there's the mo- there's the uh, matter which is just the stuff we're made of, and then there's the form of uh, the form which is that in which our specific body is shaped. And these two things were logically separable, but at the same time relied upon each other to be in a state of pure naturalness. Uh, whereas for Descartes, it was more of a ghost within the machine, where you have a a spirit who's just within you who uh, doesn't necessarily need to be connected with it, but who somehow interacts with it, and Clanthes is much more, when I'm looking at Clanthes, I'm seeing much more of a, a ghost within the machine kind of thing, which is how I'm kind of uh, uh, getting the uh, Spinoza, whereas I'm trying, and that's how I'm kind of getting the Spinoza kind of vibe, where God is just animating the body.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh- yeah, I mean, uh, Cleanthes does does seem to sort of uh, he does he does fall in line with that with that sort of argument. I think he even agrees to to that idea. Um, and you know, it's it's very um it's it's a very it's a very kind of it, it's almost like a, a very attractive um, theory, right? Um, where where you would have you know direct access and immediate uh, of observation of this of this fact, right? I mean, if it was so intricately connected. With uh, with life, I mean, then then we do have actually experience of it, um, but it becomes harder to know how we would recognize that uh, that fact of life, right? Okay. Um,
1: so can I, I want to just clarify one thing. Cleanthes doesn't actually agree with it. He agrees more that it is a... Um, this is more for the viewer's sake. He agrees that it follows from his reasoning or that he cannot see how it doesn't follow from his reasoning. So I just wanted to slightly clarify that. I don't think Cleanthes is actually saying, well, this is the god I believe in. He's saying, well, okay, yes, this does follow from that. Or at least seems to at first glance.
0: That's true, and you know it can be t- kind of tough to decide where people are standing from in this in this dialogue. Um, they make a lot of ac- uh, acquiesces, and then they'll they'll go back on it and bring up the bring up the, the the rebuttals to it in a in a later paragraph. So it can be a little tough to decide where they're coming from. So you're right. I probably am. I probably am wrong about that. I think he even says later that it's it's defective in in the material sense or something like that. That there's no there's no place where the thought is. Um, is is seated, right? There's no there's no reasoning location or or central location where everything's being organized. And so in that way it's not really the the idea of, of a of a controlling soul seems to be uh, missing from the from the idea of, of the deity being the soul of the of the universe, right? Yeah
2: analogies do tend to break down and Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I think but I do but I'm still of the opinion that he's, if he's not necessarily using, uh, I'm not saying he's using this as a parallel, if he's using it as an analogy, I still do think that analogy is uh, something derived from Descartes' uh, notion of, of the soul. Because if we go back to the whole mechanistic atheist thing, uh, this is essentially how Descartes was detracted by, his, uh, by more traditional philosophers around his time. They thought it was. Uh, very, they thought it was a mechanical atheism because he actually separates, uh, the spiritual from, uh, from the, uh, from the, from nature where, and he sees them as just like dueling entities, uh, such as being a ghost within the machine and every, and, uh, being a kind of an operating principle, Esen- essentially, uh. Descartes was just a materialist who uh, had souls as, as uh, there to supplement mysteries or animation, and that's how it uh, comes across to me.
0: Cool. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely definitely seems to be it. Um, does anybody remember what how he eventually gets to? Um... Well, I think I think what he does is he turns this uh, this idea of the uh, the animal and the soul into the next uh, part. He he moves into vegetation, right? Um, and I think I think this one sort of this one sort of caught my imagination. I hadn't really thought of the idea of using the analogy of vegetation to describe the world, but I mean he does point out that I mean there are ways in which you could see it as that. Um, it, it just because. Um, uh, d- Vegetation seems to—I um, mean, when he uses the word vegetation, he's talking about uh, like like um, generation of plant life or or what they kind of classified as plant life—and um, the fact that it seemed to come um, almost. Uh, let's see, it it, it required no um, none of the confluence of, of uh, genetic material that that the animal. Um, Analogy seem to uh, require, right? Um, it seems to be able to kind of work on its own um, and and be kind of uh, individual in that in that respect. Um, and I mean, he uses like um, the idea of it's sort of weird. He uses the idea of um, that worlds may be um, just like plants, and that uh, the seeds of those worlds may be like meteors or. Uh, Comets uh, which could land on other planets and spread the seed in that in that respect um, I thought that was an interesting analogy to make, but I, I wasn't I wasn't really sure if that's really um, How comets work or in in all cases no, it's, that seems it's to yeah.
1: definitely not how comets work. Thanks. Um, thanks, Jibon, I was gonna ask you um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean he, I think he may be talking about the scientific wisdom of the day, but but uh, planets um they form from from metals which in in astrophysics means something that's not hydrogen or helium essentially mm-hmm. um every every anything that's well or or like quark uh, plasma like a- anything that's not one of those two things or like th- it's it's metal if it's oxygen it's a metal if it's it's uh, carbon it's a metal all this stuff it's metals uh you you uh, when when a, a star um a star works by, by nuclear fusion, as, as you know. Uh, and and when the universe um, formed, uh, all we had was... Well, first we just had plasma. We just had disassociated particles. And then they eventually formed into hydrogen atoms. And then those hydrogen atoms clumped up into stars, uh, very early stars. Um, and the larger stars... Well, uh, here's here's what, what I, I, I'm not remembering very well from, from my... I, I, I used to know this stuff way better, but... Um, I don't remember what kinds of stars produce what kinds of metals, but but um, up to a certain point, you can only you can only get you can only get a, a sustainable fusion reaction from certain. Uh, certain elements. So the lower mass element that you fuse with another low mass element, the more energy you get. Oh, sorry, I just realized I'm going far too far into this. But the point is, is that that um, stars will 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 consume hydrogen and helium, and those those elements will fuse into heavier and heavier elements. But uh, to a certain point, you can't. You don't get any energy out of fusion, and so it won't be produced in stars. Um, so I think like the cutoff is is either iron or uh, i can 't remember what it is oh I think it 's iron, but uh yeah i don 't think you get anything more massive than iron but it 's somewhere around there um so then the only time you get heavier elements like really heavy elements like uranium is in is in nova uh, or supernova you you get them in in these these ex- these violent explosions and that 's why these are so rare these these uh, metals are so rare but anyway, so after you have these protostars um or these early stars, not these proto-stars, but these 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 first-generation stars produce the first metals. Then you can actually get planets. Um, gas giants form mostly from huge clouds of gas, and if there's not if there's enough gas, it becomes a star. If there's not enough gas, it, it remains a gas giant um, without actually having having a sustained fusion reaction. But but then you get these little terrestrial planets like Earth and Mars, and those are formed out of the heavier metals, um, and and those are basically clouds of debris that slowly that, that are that are orbiting in a particular area that are by gravity slowly brought together uh, and over a very long time um, they they they, be, they form a planet, uh, and you get you get the this 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 molten core because when these bits of debris from the star, well, it's complicated. But but the, but the point is, is that no, that's not how planets form. <laughs> they they form through uh, the different means. But but uh, I think that may have been the scientific theory of the day, or it may have just been something he was using as as just a well, what if this? Um, yeah. Uh,
2: thanks for uh, well, yeah. Thanks for the detail. That was actually. Uh, very interesting. I did not know that much about comets. Uh, can you uh, tell me if the sun still revolves around the earth?
1: <laughs> That's I, just a, I actually don't know much about comets. I know a lot more about the, the formation of stars. I, before I got really into philosophy, I wanted to study astrophysics, and so a lot of my knowledge has to do with that. Um, I, I love astrophysics. <laughs> interesting yeah. subject.
0: Well, if the earth is revolving around the sun, why don't we go flying off of the earth? Right? <laughs> Exactly.
1: If if, if planets uh, came from stars, why are there still stars?
0: Oh, That's a good question too.
2: Yeah.
0: I didn't even so think uh, about that.
2: For those of you who are interested in pseudoscience, maybe just as a form of entertainment, <laughs> um, if I'm not sure if you know, I'm not sure about the fun you could have with this, but there are actual YouTube channels who propagate, uh, uh, who actually propagate uh, having an earth centric universe uh, i'm not sure what the proper term was uh, he,
1: uh, it's um oh it's a geocentric geocentric uh, yeah, there, but, there but... are
2: still youtube channels that propagate that so it's, it's if you think hilarious.
1: that's if you think that's great, you should you should see the Flat Earth Society website. And there's there's two ones. There's a parody website, and then there's a real one. And the real yeah. one is horrifying. <laughs> wow. but anyway, we've gotten off topic here. <laughs>
0: a little bit, yeah. But I'm I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, that the the analogy doesn't really hold as far as seeds go, right? I mean, um, yeah. it, planets don't just give up. Comets and then send them out. Uh, <laughs> that would do, that would seems really awkward. Um, but
2: I, yeah, although, I don't think although could that be possible where if a planet is destroyed uh, or a chunk of it just fly fly off does, would it become a comet or would it just burn up eventually? Sure,
0: the, yeah, I think the, I think there are, uh, think there are well, examples it, of that right. It, I mean
1: it could become a uh, it could become a debris field. It could become a a, a cluster of asteroids. Like for example, the, the moon is well. Actually, I don't know if this is a current. I I've um from my from this is this may be old information but the last time i've really looked into this um, um, my understanding is that the moon is believed to have formed as a result of of an asteroid impact at earth that threw up a lot of debris uh, and then that debris um, came together into the moon. It's not like an asteroid hit Earth and the moon came out fully formed, but but over a very long time that debris uh, clumped together in the same way that, that debris clumps together to create planets. Uh, so so yes, if, if a planet is destroyed in a particular fashion, you could get asteroids. Um, but I don't know about comets. I, again, I really don't know much about comets at all. I do know that you can get asteroids off of a damaged or destroyed planet. Cool. Yeah,
0: totally. So I mean, I think that that, that pretty much runs into, you know, at the end where, I mean, where he starts to kind of give up on the analogy between animals and vegetation there. Um, it seems like, you know, once once uh, Philo kind of goes into the idea, you know, he says that um, Hesiod and the ancient mythologists um, said they explain the origin of the universe from an animal birth and that uh, the Brahmins in, in India, uh, they they... Suppose that the world arose from an infinite spider who spun this c- whole complicated mass from his bowels and then now annihilates it afterwards uh, by absorbing it again into his essence um, I'd never heard that but I, that was a really interesting analogy uh, but but definitely I mean um, I hadn't
1: heard that either it was very interesting as well
0: yeah cool and out. i I really and i I really enjoyed that analogy but I mean it it kind of just runs into the idea that um you know that we could we could kind of suppose or, or point to analogies all day um and, and how good we think the analogy is going to be is dependent on our subjective point of view. I mean, he says, um, you know, we think that that's a silly uh, analogy because we think that a spider is small and contemptible and not really worth very much. But uh, he says that, um, where is it here? Uh, and were there a planet wholly inhabited by spiders, which is very possible, this inference would appear as natural and irrefutable defragable as that which our planet describes to as the origin of all things to design the intelligence, as explained by Cl- Cleanthes. So, he, I mean, he points out that, I mean, if if there was a world full of spiders, that would be the most natural analogy for the creation of the universe possible, right? So, a, so
1: just a note here, there's an amazing book called, uh, uh, by an author, uh, Werner Vinge, and it's a book called uh, A Deepness in the Sky, and um, it, it includes a planet inhabited by intelligent spider-like creatures, and so I thought this analogy was wonderful because of that. I'm just going to plug him there because he's a wonderful author. Uh, there's
2: uh, an interesting, there's a quote that I'm going to just paraphrase because I'm not going to be able to get it verbatim. Uh, there was an ancient philosopher who once said if, horse, if uh, horses could portray gods, then they would have hooves and faces just like theirs uh, would be, <laughs> which is interesting because whenever you have a uh, Civilizations usually the gods, if they're portrayed as uh, creatures with super uh, humans with superpowers, uh, usually they come in the images of the locals. For example, the Ethiopians would have gods who'd be very Nubian and black, whereas the Norse would have these uh, bl- would have these powerful blonde figures. So there's a so I think there is something to be said with uh, with the in terms of identifying. Uh, any kind of divinity with oneself in terms of that. And also to speak on analogies, apparent, I'd also see that these analogies also aren't, always break down from classical theism where God is severed from the world to God being a part of it, such as like, you know, this the spiders just spitting out cobwebs from their own being and just putting it back in. That sounds more panentheistic where God essentially creates the universe out of his own self or is a reflection of his own self as opposed to, uh, creating it from something else.
1: I think that points to the fact that that classical theism was is a relatively new invention, and and that these are these are other forms of theism. But but what we think of as classical theism certainly is not that.
2: Yeah, for God is se- uh, separate. So this is uh, yeah. So this is just where the analogy breaks down from one position to another.
0: Yeah cool i you know okay so sweet uh so after after we get after that we get into part 8 which is just a short little chapter here um and i think it it kind of starts to backtrack here a little bit um he's i mean they they sort of go into well you know it's the the animal and the vegetation analogies are clearly imperfect and don't really get to uh, the idea of of a perfect deity, um, and so and so we might want to you know move just into the I think he's just going backwards a little bit and just saying um, you know that um, we we suppose um, you know it, it seems like what does it say you know revive the old Epicurean hypothesis um, uh, let's see here uh, it doesn't even mention what that is um, instead of supposing matter infinite as Epicurus did let us suppose it finite uh, and then so. So it's talking about um, that um, that if there's a finite part of number of particles in the world and a finite number of transpositions, um, isn't isn't it impossible that we could have an eternal duration or or anything with eternal duration, right? So there would be it, it's. Maybe maybe I'm saying that wrong wait. Um, he,
1: he argues that it is possible.
0: Um, right it, Yes, uh, that's perfectly possible. That, that, that since there's a finite number of particle particles um, and they're only susceptible in a finite number of transpositions, that's still it still suggests an infinite number of possibilities. Um,
1: well, sort uh, of, it's right? a finite number of transpositions and it's a finite number of possibilities that will be repeated infinitely.
0: Yeah, I guess okay. Yeah, so I mean, he's yeah, Every possible order must be tried infinitely, um. and that's
1: actually, that's actually. I, I mean, f- from my limited understanding of it, I I I'm under the impression that, uh, under under quantum mechanics, there are a, a finite number of transpositions, and so you could get this scenario if if we had a finite number of particles. I mean, actually, if we had an infinite number of particles, we have a finite number of transpositions and an infinite amount of time, or an infinite number of particles, you'd get perfect repetitions. For example, if the universe is infinitely large, or or even just larger than a certain number, that doesn't have to be even infinite, but if it's larger than a certain quantity, you'll get square meters of space that are perfectly identical to other square meters of space. and if you have an infinitely large universe, you'll have infinitely large swaths of space that are identical to one another in everything but location. Um, so, and in fact, you'll even get those that are aren't not obviously identical to one another. Well, anyway, but 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 yes, I actually made this argument uh, with Epicurus. We were we were going through the cosmological arguments.
2: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, we were going through the Kalma, uh, and uh, we were going through the CLOM argument and. Essentially, I challenged Braun to to uh, try to oppose it without resorting to a B theory of time. Just assume an A theory. Uh, just for the sake of argument. Uh, yeah. Personally, I, I don't buy into the column because I assume a B theory. But uh, that's neither here nor there. But that's uh, but that's already, actually it. oh go on so right.
1: That's, so, that's, wait, that's, wait, that's wait. actually
2: that was actually something I've never uh, uh, concerned before and. I think that's a brilliant and I think that is a brilliant point. Essentially, well if there's a finite number of atoms and you have an infinite space of time, then essentially every position then essentially every possible position is at least going to come up once.
1: Well, think, it'll come up an infinite number of times, won't it? Oh, <laughs> and it will it will repeat an infinite number of, of patterns as well. Um, you'd have to argue that a I guess you'd have
2: to argue like El Ghazali and Craig do that uh, an actual infinite does not
1: exist. Yeah, yeah I mean, wouldn't be so so soon to dismiss that. But anyway, <laughs> so it's about
0: so it's about infinite repetition, then, eh? Okay, because I, I totally missed that. And I guess I guess the next line sort of makes sense um to me now. Um, it says this world, therefore, with all its events, even in the most minute, has been has before been produced and destroyed, and will again be produced and destroyed without any bounds and limitations. No one who has a conception of the powers of the infinite in comparison of infinite of finite will ever scruple this determination. Um. So he's talking about, um, you know, that that because it's going to repeat over and over, and because the matter is finite, it will be created, it will be produced, and then destroyed in infinite loops in in all of its possible uh, combinations. Um, am I am I, am I way off on that? Or? No, you're, you're totally correct. Right. No, okay, right. cool. I think
1: you're, you're correct. Yeah, I, I like this. I like that he mentions this. Uh, I, I mean, I've. I've this is this is something that's interested me in the past, and so I like I like it that there's so many things he says here that are that are still either backed up today or or at least vaguely relevant. I mean, other than the whole thing about comets, which I think may have just been him waxing poetical or, or just just right. I mean, reaching
0: reaching for an analogy, right? Um, yeah. uh, that that can happen sometimes, and and with you know limited scientific knowledge, it's it's clear that um you know that that's bound to happen. Um, but I mean, okay, so so with the with, with the internet. Uh, regression of of, uh, of possible combinations. Let's say, um, Demia says that um, it, it, this supposes that matter can acquire motion without a voluntary agent or a first mover. And and this is where I think Philo kind of gets into it. Um, you know that that um we you know our experience is that um, you know even though it seems difficult and and incomprehensible, our experience is actually of a lot of um, energies and motions that are we don't. Necessarily know or have a have a known voluntary agent, he calls it, um, so that you don't have to have um, an observable voluntary agent in order for that motion to start. Right? There doesn't have to be a prime mover; um, only the m- movement itself. Um, it, 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 did I? Am I am I misreading that, or did, did you guys no, no, you, pick up on that? Um, it's in it's in paragraph one twenty nine, um, and so,
1: yeah yeah it's an interesting point um, and in fact, this is kind of the argument I made uh, with uh, Eddie uh, I, I basically said, well there are, there are a number of other reasons I was saying this, but I was saying, well if we consider every every um, elementary particle as being eternal, it never beginning to exist um, and and being perfectly simplistic there's there's a reason for that but I'm not going to go into it right now um, uh, being being completely indivisible, um, one can imagine them then fitting the description of God or gods there could be many of them uh, that are uncaused um, but there's an interesting point here that he makes um, and that is about the conservation of energy uh, it's it's a very uh, I mean Newton Newton had this idea in in uh, for every action there's an equal opposite reaction but now we know that it it, it extends far into to to, to further reaches than just motion it it, it extends everywhere uh, and it different sorts of energy can be turned into one another. Uh, chemical energy can be turned to, to uh, thermal energy, which can be turned into electromagnetic energy. Um, it, it's, there's, these things are not as distinct and as... they're not distinct as we thought they were. Uh, they're, well, they're, they are distinct. There are some distinctions, but they're not totally separate as we thought they were. And they are conserved, absolutely, as far as we understand it. Um, and so... So what he's saying is, in some respects, conceivable. But there is a problem, though. um, This this result in physics, which is that if you if you let a system run for long enough, it will it will reach a point of of equilibrium. This is a a thermodynamic something from thermodynamics. So, um, what energy is, or I mean, it'll it'll sort of run out of potential energy to some extent. All the potential energy, well, it the system will be completely uniform. So, uh heat will be be perfectly evenly distributed everywhere in the system uh, and and motion will be evenly distributed and nothing will be feeding into anything else anymore nothing could feed into anything else anymore so this yeah. does contradict that this this he- idea of heat death does contradict that
0: yeah I mean um, no, yeah
1: well,
0: yeah I mean the heat death is uh, I mean that what we're talking about is is the idea of, of uh, atrophy right I mean that that we're, that we're moving towards a a uh, an at- atrophic uh a system, right, where um, balance is, is seeking to be to be needed uh, or to be to be maintained, um, or well, or to be achieved, right? Um, and now it, this is this is what this is the difference, right? I mean, it's um, it's about energy is about um the difference between things, right? Um, in order for there to be any work, energy has to be transferred. In order for energy to be transferred, there has to be a difference between the two energies, right? Um, if uh, energies work? are perfectly equal, then no work uh, is is being. Uh, achieve.
1: To be to be particular though, work just means force over distance. Um, so I mean, or or I think mass over distance. Uh, and so I mean, I, I, it's not entirely really a uh, concept, but but force is important here. Uh, so for there to be be energy, uh, for that energy to be be used, for that energy to be uh, become kinetic energy, or, or to cease being potential energy and become kinetic energy, it then has to be um, it then has to be used. But that that the the it being used uh, pushes the system towards thermal equilibrium uh, and therefore to non-motion so, so it will become a, eventually become a perfectly chaotic system which doesn't mean it's all random in fact it means the exact opposite it means it's entirely uniform and that there is no heat there, because everything is the same temperature no energy can be derived from heat flowing from one thing to another uh, and because all motion is settled, there is no, no motion to be transferred between things. It's it's a complicated concept, and I don't think it's one I fully grasp, but the, the basic point is that certain systems w- will eventually sort of run down. They'll, they'll they'll reach a point of thermal equilibrium, at which point there will be no more motion, essentially. Or yeah. no I- impetus for
0: it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm, uh, I mean, for any for there to be any perceivable um, action anyways which, which I mean is, is all we're really talking about okay but I, I I agree there's um I mean it's it's interesting how um how close to the in line with the with with these laws that that this um this dialogue sort of sort of runs along and um, I think um I think what what they're really trying to get at is you know the the that that um the universe seems to Operate without any necessary push from exterior forces, right? Um, sure. That that the that the the way the laws are set up seems to imply, if if we were looking at it as an analogy, seem to imply that they they seem to attend sort of automatically in a way. Um, that there's that there's a, a sense where the system is set up um, to act the way it's supposed to act. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, actually, the, the the point I was making though about um, about sort of entropy running its course is that that I'm not convinced that that such a system that he's describing is possible, um, at least under certain circumstances, because things would eventually reach a state of thermal equilibrium. Um, that's that's I was actually kind of undercutting his point to some extent, but I do agree. He he does make a lot of things in this dialogue that are quite in line with science. This is one of those where I'm. Um, um, it's. I've got mixed feelings about it. On one hand, conservation of energy. On the other hand, problems with thermal equilibrium. But. But yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, he definitely does seem to be referring to a, a perfect system where where we may uh, retain all the energy, right? Um, and uh, definitely, there's there's. Uh, I don't remember which. Thermodynamic law, it is anymore, but you lose. I mean, you lose a certain amount of heat in any transfer, right? Um, well, but that's
1: that. The energy is not lost. I mean, it it's turned into another form. It's it's unusable energy, but right, I, it, it's, I think, it's yeah. still energy. So the right. energy is conserved. But it,
0: yeah, I think the, the the idea is that you lose it as heat, not you lose heat itself. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, it, it becomes heat. Yeah, and, and it's it becomes in an, uh, a a less usable form, and eventually, uh, as all of that becomes heat once once all of that motion has been turned into heat and once all that heat has been evenly dispersed there is nothing to, to uh, nothing to excite motion there's nothing to excite a change in states that's that's the ultimate problem is that, that as you lose all this energy slowly to heat and that heat becomes evenly dispersed that's that's where you hit problems mm-hmm. and I, I think that that kind of cuts cuts this point uh, off at the knees potentially uh, it doesn't I'm not sure it it holds anymore but I could be incorrect. I, I'm, I'm sure someone can correct me. Do so in the comments, please. <laughs>
2: and you were corrected in three, two, one.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, I think we're we're getting to about um, twenty five minutes to the end of the broadcast or, or our planned broadcast. Anyways, we know we always usually go over a little bit. Um, Just I, for I know, you guys. yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I mean, I really um. You know, I think I think we maybe we should get into the idea of um, maybe um, the idea of uh, what am I thinking of here? Where um, it's uh, where am I? What am I thinking here? The you know because because this whole thing it's sort of um, it, it seems like it's reliant on the supposition that the universe must have a cause and that we've you know, I think I think when Philo approaches the dialogue, he he kind of assents to the idea that the cause of the of what we see must be perfect. You know, we're we're sort of we're ascribing the perfection to the cause, and then we're trying to make it back. You know, we're trying to point to the analogy that would that would support that that presupposition, right? Um, and I think I think there's a way. I mean, um, that you could look at you know these these. Uh, these analogies that he's making um, as um, maybe imperfect in in their ability to describe the perfection that we're that we're already ascribing, right? I mean, I think that's his real problem with it. Uh, that that this perfection seems to fall short when we when we come at it from behind, right? Once we've made that, once we've attributed the perfection to the deity, um, it seems to ha- we seem to have a hard time finding an analogy that would help us to understand it um, and it I don't know um do you I mean do you guys feel like like uh, like the Mia and Philo have a point in in the idea that perhaps you know the deity is just incomprehensible and maybe we're, we don't have the understanding possible to get to that knowledge um, I mean it, it Philo sort of seems to be arguing from that point um, a little bit underhandedly or maybe not totally um, it uh, in uh, gen- genuinely, um, but but I wonder. I mean, I wonder if it, if he has a really. I mean, if both him and Demia have have a good point in in in, in sort of you know uh, pointing out the shortcomings of all these analogies.
1: Well, I mean, I certainly do, but uh, I'm an atheist after all. So <laughs> what, what do you expect? Um, the the I think the to 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 slightly interpret what Philo says at the beginning. I don't think he agrees that God is perfect. Um, I think he he agrees that there is some something that caused uh, the universe to exist, uh, and that he calls that thing God. But I don't think he he ever really is willing to ascribe much of the properties to it.
0: Yeah, I think, I, I, I think he does He does seem to feel a little more hesitant to ascribe properties and wants um, them to kind of give him the analogies to, to do it properly. Um, but I think Mia is very convinced um, that God yeah. is perfect, and in fact... Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean... And,
1: and I think the Clanthes makes an, an incredibly good point. I, both of them kind of argue against one another's analogies to, I think, devastating effect. Um, and, and, yeah, and, I mean, and I think... Clanthes makes an excellent point fairly early on that, that, that to describe God as, as intelligent or as, as a mind is, is either vacuous or presumptuous, uh, that, that it's not something we can really determine or it means nothing. Uh, I think that's actually a good point, but, but anyway, sorry, uh, go on. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, that's definitely
0: that's definitely right along with what I was going to say. I mean, that that there's there's this idea that I mean either we're either we're undercutting God's abilities or we're overestimating his abilities seems to be the two points that end up getting argued between the two characters here. Um, that that somehow if we if we ascribe him human reasoning, we're we are we're undercutting his abilities, and if we ascribe him, um you know the perfection that would be attributed to a deity um, or to to the the ultimate deity that that we were sort of overestimating what he's done in comparison with what we can see or what you know um, i think he, he he points to i think there's an analogy of a of the shipbuilder um, you know and we we kind of look around and we say you know oh this is an amazing you know ship like i can't believe a, a carpenter made this ship but you know and we'd be very surprised to find out that the Dude, who helped frame it, or you know, the people who helped make it, you know, none of them could build that ship on their own, or or you know that they all required <laughs> each other's help to make that happen, you know, and, and, and so so generations. exactly. So yeah. are we are we ascribing um, are we ascribing that perfection to the deity when you know maybe he he had a hand in it, but isn't necessarily the one who uh, mm-hmm. caused it into being, or you know, are are we are we you know moving too fast to attribute um, the the perfection to the deity is, is, is sort of what I'm trying to get out here uh,
2: it, in terms of describing it to the perfection of the deity um, I'm kind of reading it as at least as I why I see the text is a very uh, deistic uh, kind of God who is in his own right uh, and could be described as an uh, and as intelligent, wise, the, so on and so forth, all these uh, qualities that are forth, good to have. Uh, but at the same time, this is a deity who, while being the creator, is somebody who's very remote. And this notion of perfection within creation uh, is uh, kind of a reflection of, also of uh, those who are within it. For example, uh, they, he comes to uh, uh, later in one set he comes to it uh, much later in, in describing the problem of evil for example as a way of uh, understanding imperfection but with regard to that uh, I think it's moving on to a discussion where God is more or less removed from the religious context and more in a philosophical context
0: yeah I think I would agree with that um, I mean there's yeah I mean it, there's there, it's definitely hard to make the jump between natural religion and and the the causes that we're ascribing to the the creation of the universe, is, is, from what I'm from what I'm gathering here, I mean, I think that's what really the discussion is, right? I mean, how much can we know about the deity, given given the current state of affairs? Um, and and I think I think sort of, I mean, I think they're pointing to that analogy is is necessarily imperfect, but also maybe inadequate in in any context, right? That maybe. I think Demia would say that you know that it's even even our best analogy would fall so much would fall so short of of possibly even describing the deity right um, and that any shortcomings we may find in it would be our fault rather than the deity's fault. Um, but but in that way it does definitely remove it from from the idea of of being a religious deity right. I mean uh, any way that we could base religious ideas on it and I I, I would uh, I'd be curious to get your idea on that, Eddie. I mean would you I mean, do you find that um, that these analogies, or or that that the that point of of the analogy being imperfect, um, would give you pause in in attributing uh, like an attribute to the deity?
2: In terms of how we, under- I actually just want to emphasize in terms of how we would understand analogy, and I'm um, just going to use the three examples with the word "see." For example, what does somebody say when they say the word "see"? Um, For example, when I say uh, I, when I would say I see a beautiful ocean, I'm I'm using it in a equivocal way. I'm describing a property. I'm saying I have sight, and with that sight, I, I have that specific sight has the property of uh, being in the view of the ocean. And in an equivocal sense, I could be using "see" as to say. Well, that was an interesting visit to the Holy See uh, this weekend. I'd be using it in a completely different context. It would be the same word "see," but I'm using it in a sense that's far different than its intent. But when I say an analogy, for example, I see the Pythagorean theorem. I'm saying anal- I'm using that analogy to portray my relationship to this theorem. I'm seeing. So when I say, "Oh, I see it," I'm saying okay I'm just using the word C as a and as an analogy of saying of uh, my relationship to uh, to uh, the, the theorem in question I have the theorem is something that as I understand it in my mind not something I'm seeing with my eye but rather an idea or thought in that sense it's related so when I say of an analogy of understanding God when I say God is wise the analogy of wisdom is perfect because even though the actual property of wisdom isn't there, the relationship that is there is very reminiscent of the way we see wisdom. Uh, Wisdom being holding the information to make a a choice that is uh, in in tune with being wise. I know that's not much of a definition but to come up with the definition of what is wisdom I think would take us a good chunk of this podcast so I'm just Going to hope we all have a decent, interpre- a fairly decent interpretation that clears everything up. So I think while analogies might break down in certain circumstances, I think in in the essence of what they're trying to capture, they do work. Like, I see. Uh,
0: okay, so you'd be you be, yeah, be I um, see what you did there. Yeah, I see. <laughs> but, I, but, I mean, you're talking about, um, you know, using context or, or being able to determine a context. And I mean, how would you determine how far along in that analogy you could possibly use that context or, or that analogy, right? I mean, how far would it go? It, do you just go to the first uh, point where it, the analogy seems to break down and then um, it, is that where the context ends or, or can, you, can you ignore breakdowns in, in the analogy and uh, still apply it to a context?
2: I you know I see it to the objective point that's trying to be maintained for example, just to go back to the Pythagorean theorem when I say I see it and someone says oh uh, oh I okay can you describe it to me oh yeah the Pythagorean theorem in in terms of being what it is is, is essentially a way of understanding the parameters of a triangle okay what does it look like well hmm. what do you mean what does it look like you, you said you saw it well that I, I saw it in terms of, a mental understanding, not necessarily in, in terms of the way you see it. <laughs> yeah. Or, I... uh, but so, in terms of that, I would say I would say it's uh, beneficial for the objective it's trying to capture, but not necessarily for um, a more uh, uh, equivocal understanding or manner, where what it would also uh, include uh, what's in the vision of the person.
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess. Um... I mean, I I guess I my 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 problem and and the the reason that we got into the, that long argument last time, uh, and I'm not going to get it too far into it this time since I think we're wrapping up. But the the issue there is that you can explain to me precisely what you mean by you see the Pythagorean theorem, you see it in your mind's eye, you see representation of it in your mind's eye, you understand it, you comprehend it, you comprehend its implications. But when you say God is wise. Unless one can explain what one means by God is wise, I would contend that that the person saying that does not understand what it understand God's wisdom then, uh, and is is therefore saying it arbitrarily or, or saying it purely as an honorific. That would be my argument. But that may be as a please don't take offense. But that is yes. that is the the impression I get. Fair enough, and uh, I'm just
2: not going. Fair enough, and um, although that's, that is a very interesting rabbit trail to follow, yeah, under, and, and do that do is, it. and that is where, and, and I'll even, and I'll even double down your objection. Uh, it also, um, it, well, I'm a, I'm also going to quote uh, two philosophers that uh, might even push this point that I don't even that many YouTube atheists might not uh, might be grinning, but they might actually like the fact that they're helping their example. Of. William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland actually argue that we'll actually double down and not just use the point you brought up, Jibran, but would also include uh, the fact that this just leads us to uh, narrow agnosticism that really can't uh, be used to uh, gain any further knowledge. Uh, it, it just keeps us in a very uh, unknowing saddle that isn't, re- that isn't really conducive to uh, – A good theological understanding in the sense of any other discipline giving them understanding. So Uh, there's also that problem, too, if uh, we're just if I if I could be so kind as to help my opponent ma- uh elaborate on the uh, difficulties. I uh, wouldn't
1: consider his opponents. I I think we're we're after the same thing. Okay, uh, we're
2: after the same. Not, not, uh, we I'm have different saying conclusions. It, I'm not I'm taking it. Taking it the saying way.
0: Inteloquitor, let's say. interlocutor
2: Okay, interloquator. Yeah, there you <laughs> yeah. Thanks,
0: John. <laughs> You're welcome. Hey, oh, yeah, I'm glad Plato came up with that term because it does it does have a very it doesn't have yeah. very many bad connotations, right? I mean, yes. it, I think I don't think that opponent it, take carries with it sort of this idea of of complete complete uh, controversy right as if <laughs> as if you're you're definitely opposed uh, in all ways to each other and I think uh, in sort of gives it the idea that um, you're you're kind of going back and forth it seems to me you know that there's that there's a conversation that's taking place and I, I really like that idea
1: yeah cool. uh, the- Hooray for Plato. Yeah, a big good Play-Doh job. Fan. Exactly. So yeah, let's
0: try to use that term whenever we can if we're if we're talking about other people or something like that. You know, I think uh, I think re- uh, sticking away from terms of, of direct opposition is always is always good. Um, well, at least
1: we're referring to one another. I mean, there are some people who I've I've just dis- I've, I've had conversations with who I wouldn't describe as interlocutors. So, <laughs> yeah. well, as long as
0: you're not describing each other as enemies, I think we're, I yeah. think we're in, in good in good uh, uh, or, in good stead ex- here.
1: Or is that bastard over there? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, I think we're we kind of came up right to um part nine, which is I think is a pretty good place to stop. Um, I think you know I think there's always room to kind of cover stuff back over. Um, this dialogue is really kind of free flowing, and there's a lot of points that they make at the beginning that they kind of bring up again at the end. Um, but into part nine here, we kind of get into the idea of, um, you know, what is the purpose of of the creation, right? And can we infer anything from the um, the, the the amount of uh, happiness or or suffering that, that seems to be taking place in uh, in the in the world that has been created, right? Um, and so I think I think we kind of start moving into that into that idea, um, especially in into chapter ten. Um, so I think I think next next week um, that'll be Tuesday at five o'clock uh, Mountain Standard Time. Uh, Sophia X Neal will be talking about that particularly, um, and, and just uh, just basically, I think we're going to go from part nine all the way up to part twelve, um, and uh, you know, sort of get into the idea of you know the problem of evil and uh, the the uh, you know arguments uh, about about uh, evil, um, and and also into the you know very much into uh, directly where where Cleanthes and Philo are going head to head against each other, right? So it's skepticism versus um, uh, almost uh, evidentialism, almost, I would say. Um, I, don't, I don't know how you would even describe Cleanthes, right? Um,
1: well, I wouldn't say he's, he's so much an evidentialist. Yeah, um, that's clearly the more wrong just word. As a, uh, I mean, he, he he certainly makes a lot of arguments that modern evidentialists would, but I think he's more of of really a philosophical... Philosophically minded theist, where Demea really—I don't see him as really caring too much about the philosophy. I mean, in fact, actively rejecting and shunning it. So he's a philosophical theist. Philos a philosophical skeptic, and Demea is more the orthodox one. It's a great dynamic, by the way. Yeah, yeah I think I think
0: so too. Especially because they argue um, points that sort of get argued from other sides in in today's modern debates. Um, so I think that that they each kind of take sides against. Um, Positions that even modern people right now argue for, and they also um, take different sides against each other than I, than I would have expected. Um, and
2: they have these very weird partnerships where, at uh, one <laughs> moment, two of them would be where uh, uh, two of them would be partnering up and going against the other guy, and then there's a bit of a switcheroo at the topic, and then it's one guy getting pulled by the other two.
1: Yeah, yeah it's so, a great. Uh, it's a lovely dialogue. It was it was it very is. well done by him. I mean, it took twenty years to write, so I guess I, I'd expect someone that brilliant. Uh, given twenty years to produce something great. So, yeah, and I, I wonder, you
0: know I wonder if uh, when he was writing it, he kind of set up each character to be a very um, a very stereotypical um, character, and then yeah. decided somewhere along the lines that he could really get more mileage out of it by switching some of their positions and by mm. by having them come at it from different points. Um, mm. and, and you know, to argue to argue against um, the idea of imperfect analogy for the theist, right? I mean, I think a, I think a theist these days would say that you know all of our analogies aren't going to be perfect. You know that we have a certain amount of that we can't can't know, right? A certain amount that is incomprehensible. Um, I think that's an admission that a regular, uh, that a theist, a modern theist, right now would would easily make, and uh, and it seems to be something that Cleanthes has a hard time making.
1: Yeah, so I, I agree. Uh, so uh, I, if, if we're wrapping this up, I want to say yes. we're going to try on Friday to to talk about theatetus for the third time running. Hopefully, third time's the charm. We just haven't had we've there been there been logistical issues. Um, people haven't been available or I've messed up in rather egregious ways. Uh, or, yeah, there, there have been issues in the past, but hopefully, Friday, everything is going to be sorted out, and we're going to be able to do a discussion on theatitis, uh, theatitis, theatitis, uh then, which is um, a very early document in epistemology. It's a platonic dialogue. Um, so, yeah, Friday, this time, or maybe an hour before, um, I it'll depend... That that'll just get pinned down closer to the date, but uh, yeah, hopefully that will happen as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, just as a as a side note, did anybody else um, find the names in Theatetus, uh giggle worthy? <laughs> Which one? I remember, I remember I don't know for the first little bit I was I was uh I was listening to the audiobook and every time the guy would say Theodorus or Theatetus I like I would start <laughs> yeah. to giggle like cuz Theodorus is it's you know Theodorus yeah. and Theatetus is Theatetis and I, I don't know it's, it's, it kind of made me kind of made me giggle a little bit so if anybody uh-huh. else uh I I would appreciate if anybody else would admit to giggling at that point because uh, I did not uh,
1: listen to the audiobook. so there you go. So that's probably why. If you were Theodorus, it, for me, yeah, exactly. Not uh, Theodore. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: I've actually, I
2: I, uh, I hate to admit it, but uh, since you were so brave, I uh,
0: you yeah, giggled at Theodore too, I giggled, didn't you?
2: I giggled a bit. Yes, yeah, so I'll admit.
0: It's funny. It's a funny name. And I think I don't know I don't, I don't know. It's compared to Socrates, it seems like a little bit of a wussy name, but uh, yeah, I mean whatever that's. I think he's meant to sort of come off as a young right? Um and and the the, the uh The what how do you say it? I Theodorus. keep on, I'm just, I'm just going to keep saying Theodorus. Um Theodorus. he kind of comes off as the old guy, right? So I mean, that's I think that's where they're supposed to come from, right? That uh that uh, Theotetus is supposed to be fresh off the nipple and uh Theodorus yeah. is uh you know Old enough that, you know, there. a little rank, he's, oh, he's a little ripe, say.
1: <laughs> I think you're reading too much into it. <laughs> it's entire, I,
0: yeah, it's, I usually do. Um, so that's, that's how it goes. Well, cool. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate your, uh, your time and input. Um, no you know, I think uh, this is a, a great place to say uh, goodbye to the uh, two or three people that are, are viewing us right now live and, uh, you know, the hundreds of thousands that are going to see this uh, into the future. Um, and yeah absolutely guys uh, thanks a lot for your for your input you can hang on and we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit here but for now I think we'll say goodbye to the audience goodbye guys bye <laughs> see you later.